Hello and welcome to the Fine Watchers podcast, episode 19. I'm Ben, welcome along. If you're coming back and listening again, welcome back. If it's your first time, welcome aboard. Hope you enjoy my conversation with this episode's guest. It's rare that you truly get to speak to a raconteur. My guest this time is definitely one of those. It's Ben Lewin, Australian filmmaker, watch trader, and all-round amazing storyteller. There's some incredible anecdotes in this episode. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did having the conversation with Ben. As always, if you like the podcast, please do leave us a review and rate the podcast. It helps us reach more people and is truly appreciated. For the Fine Watchers podcast, episode 19, here we go. Okay, well, I, I haven't... Uh... God, I don't think I've spent a whole bullshit session on watches for a long time. <laughs> Perfect. So just a little background for our listeners. My, my guest on this episode is Ben Lyon, an LA-based Australian filmmaker. He's a close friend of the family of my best childhood and now lifelong friend, Louis. So I've crossed paths with Ben over many years in, in several different contexts. Where my connection with Ben becomes relevant to the Fine Watchers podcast was with the release in 1991 of his film, The Favour, The Watch and The Very Big Fish, um, starring Jeff Goldblum and legendary British comedy actor Bob Hoskins. The film featured a Jaeger Le Coultre Reverso, which for me as a 16-year-old at the time established the Reverso and more broadly watches as something that could be something very special just beyond brand and function and uh, was one of the factors that helped, amongst others, to solidify what's become a lifelong obsession with watches. It was also... Uh, a cousin-uncle of mine who also knows Ben, who was the original peddler, David uh, (laughs) was the original watch peddler for me. But just to, I guess, also put a little context into what you're going to hear in the conversation, Ben very kindly as part of the the preparation for this conversation forwarded me details of his film Hollywood Gold, which is going to be linked to in the description, and I thoroughly recommend it to everybody to go and have a look because it's it's a, it's a great film but also beautifully encapsulates many of the themes that I like to discuss on the podcast, hence many references to it throughout the discussion. And according to that film, it was... Uh, the watch, the favour, and the very big fish, and that reverser that kicked off a fascination with watches for Ben. So, first of all, welcome to the podcast, Ben Lowen. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. So, is that right? Was the favour, the watch, and the very big fish indeed the start of your watch journey, or did you have a love for watches before? Well, it's, it's really interesting uh, trying to figure out where journeys start. Um, you, you know, because you pick a point and you think, oh, no, there was a point before that. Then you find the point before that. And, 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 and you know, knowing that I was going to talk about this, I thought, was there a point before that? I thought, well, there must have been because I, I remember creating the title. You know, I'd written this um, uh, script and it had derived from a, a French short story called Rue Saint-Sulpice. And I thought, uh, that's not a title for a film, Rue Saint-Sulpice. Just the name of a street doesn't mean anything. Um, and, and, I, I, and I was tossing up two titles in the air. One was 
twilight time because when I finished the script, I had this song in my head, heavenly shades of night are falling, it's twilight time. And the other was the fate of the watch and the very big fish, which uh, was one of those titles that you think, oh, give me a break, um, you know, like the old masturbator from the faraway hills, that sort of <laughs> So now, you know, what was the explanation of this ludicrous title? It was very simple. I was stoned off my face. I was at some... <laughs> Beach house in Sorrento. It must have been three o'clock in the morning, and I was trying to think of a title: "The Favor, the Watch, and the Very Big Fish." Of course, um, uh, because all of these elements were actually in in the story, um, and and I thought, oh well, <laughs> and then way way down the line, I remember when we almost finished editing the film. I thought, surely they're going to change the title. They're not going to go with this crazy title. But no, no, they insisted on going with that title. Now, why did I put a watch in the story? I don't know. But, they, you know, there's a scene with this little girl at a birthday party offering this reverse, this watch to this uh, gloomy pianist if he smiles. <laughs> and... What was it that made me think of that moment or that this little girl should have that watch? I have no idea. But certainly um, I regard that, you know, the making of the film as a kind of turning point. Um, uh, it became a kind of challenge for the designer to come up with the watch because the idea was this is a watch that you had to remember at the end of the film, oh, that's the watch that we saw when da 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 da, and he kept bringing me one watch after another after another, and I thought none of these are memorable. None of these have got something about them which is ah, uh-huh, I saw that watch before, yeah, and it was only that watch. And then he brought me the Reverso, and I'd never seen anything like that before. And flip, flip, I thought they're going to remember that. And so uh, that's how it came to be because it was um, – if you were going to put a MacGuffin in a film and you wanted people to, to recognise it, that, that did the trick for me. Now, you know, there are a couple of huge close-ups of that watch in the movie yeah. because it is part of the story. They're not actually gratuitous. But when Gégé Lecoultre saw the movie – you know, they invited me and Judy to their showroom in Paris, which is actually their major, you know, uh, you know, distribution outlet. Yes. And said, pick yourself a couple of watches. Oh, no way. Cool. <laughs> and I had no idea. At that time, my preference was for austerity. You know, a watch... A watch with all this mushy gas going on on the dial, uh, not for me, you know, something uh, which had a, a design about it, which had, you know. So naturally I chose the Reverso, which I'd used in the film. Superb. Although they, they had just come out with their first, you know, oversized Reverso. Oh, yes, yeah. Well, I, I think, think it was Drew, Drew 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 Face and it would, you know, had it, it had this kind of sort of slightly Dali-esque design to it. 
And uh, in retrospect, I thought, why the hell didn't I take that? (laughs) Or why didn't I take something, you know, a bit more impressive like a geographic or something like that? But, but, uh, you know, at the time I didn't know. Anyway, I got a a nice uh, plain automatic for Judy, two gold watches and, you know, we walked out of there with these watches. I don't know, there must have been at least 10 grand's worth of watches. What, what do you do? Do we insure them? And, you know, for me, <laughs> up, up to that point, a watch was, I don't know, something you found at the bottom of a Ouija's packet, you know, um, but not something that you spent real money on. <laughs> I'm trying to remember up until that time, what, what did I have? I remember if I had ever bonded with a watch. It was this uh, watch called an Ernest Borrell. Ever heard yes. of an Ernest Borrell? Yeah, yeah, Borrell? absolutely. It was yeah. an Ernest Borrell cocktail watch. I think Fabulous. it was an automatic and, and you know, the sort of the dial pulsated at you. Uh, you know, it was kind of psychedelic. They did the Mystere dials, didn't they, the, the Ernest Borrells, I think? No, the mystery dial, I think, was uh, the Coulter Vacheron. Um, oh, no, not necessarily that they invented it, but I'm pretty sure I've, I saw, I'm, I'm Googling as we as we speak, but I'm fairly certain that they did a range of uh, very, very nice Mystere dials. They, they certainly did that kaleidoscope that you spoke about that, that kind of. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the one I can remember ever having. And. And anyway, that's how it started. And I remember the my assistant on that film, when we were editing, he kept bringing me these um, uh, auction catalogs. Um, I have to remember, this was all pre-internet, okay? Yes. So and pre-watch the explosion, I think, as well. You could still buy a reverso for under well, ten grand. <laughs> it was a different, very. It was a different time different kind of uh, range of people. Anyway, I remember um, going uh, to Geneva from Paris because I had a bunch of money, you know, and uh, my expenses on the film, and I I didn't want to take a whole lot of money back to Australia with me. So I went to, uh, uh, I don't know, was uh, uh, Geneva, Geneva, Sotheby's, Christie's, and I bought a handful of vintage Attic Philippe's. Oh, just a handful of. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. Can't do that anymore. <laughs> you know, I tell you, it was different in those days. You go to where you pick up your goods in at, at, at the back room in Sotheby's or Christie's. There's bundles of cash. You know, this was huge laundry. <laughs> I think things have changed. Um, But anyway, so I came back to Australia with a handful of um, Patek Philippe watches. And then, you know, we we decided we had to go back and live in Paris and how would I finance this? So I I asked, you know, Ron Grigger, uh, you know Ron, don't you? Yeah, very well. And I got... I, I've been trying to convince him to do a podcast with me, so I'll, I'll uh, oh, no, no. this and say, well, you know, I have guests from L.A. who say, about, <laughs> you, know, you can't come five minutes to do a podcast with me. Sorry, well, go on. Look, any, anyway, the, I got 
the designer from the film I last made, um, a film to design the window like a Magritte painting, you know, with clouds and bowler hats and green apples and put the watchers on this display and called the whole thing a collection of a gentleman. So, you know, I learned in a way to marry watches and bullshit at a very early stage of the whole process. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people have, um, you know, never gotten into that, never gotten out of the technology, never, uh, you know, really understood that the bullshit is a really major element of the whole thing. So there it was, collection of a gentleman, and it was all bought by some Hong Kong dealer all in one lot, and I made a very nice profit, thank you. And then that was a good experience. It financed our return to France, and we lived for another year in France. And um, Fabulous. Uh, Fabulous. And, and I remember there was another another kind of turning point. I, I had to make a trip from Melbourne to London and I went via Los Angeles and New York. And in Los Angeles I stopped and went to a shop called Wanna Buy a Watch on Melrose. You know it? They, they now have websites and stuff, but, yeah, I've not yeah, been there, but I, I, I'm there online. Want to buy a watch. In, that, in those days it was kind of a funky little place and, you know, surrounded by tattoo parlours. Now he's moved to a different part of Melrose. It's surrounded by posh restaurants and uh, clothing stores. Uh, but in those days, <laughs> Ken was – anyway, so I buy a birthday present for my wife. It's a, it's a paddock Philippe. It's pink gold. Uh, I don't know, early 1960s or something like that. Beautiful, really like mint condition, what you'd call unisex, um, um, 33 millimetres thereabouts, and um, I knew she'd love it. So I travelled on to London wearing this watch, and I, I'm in Bond Street in one of those arcades, and this one of the guys there, his name was Dov, he was an Israeli he, he looks at me wearing this watch and he, he says, can I buy the watch? I said, this is for my wife's birthday. <laughs> oh, it, it, a nice guy anyway. He happens to tell me what he would pay for it. Yeah, yeah. In, in English pounds. And so I, I go home and because and, um, we had, you know, we had a place in London and, and I figure out that the difference between what I paid for it and what he offered me, I called Judy and I said, look, I've got great news. I bought you a beautiful watch for your birthday. But this guy, Dolph, in this, you know, in Bond Street, he offered me such and such. And with the difference, with the profit, I can pay for you and Oliver, who was then our son, who was then a baby, yeah. to come and join me in Paris for your birthday, which you <laughs> Paris in a millisecond. Paris. <laughs> That's superb. So I'd just gone through this experience of going to a retail store in Los Angeles and selling it to a retail store in London 
and being able to buy my wife a, an air ticket plus one for the baby. <laughs> yeah, the it's difference. crazy that we actually. <laughs> That's how fun watches started. So when years and years ago, my friend and I would, um, who spoke Japanese, could get watches out of the Japanese market when you know a bit more grey sort of trade was tolerated by the by the um, the, the distributors and so on, uh, and we made money. That, that was the whole business model: was the arbitrage on what you could get, what you could buy over there, and buy buy. It for yes. here, yes. But and eBay and other global platforms, Chrono and all that, have just but but you know, the outside those, of that market. In those days, take the internet out of the equation. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I would um, I would buy watches in Collins Street retail outlets, yeah, high end yeah. watches, yeah, and sell them in Beverly Hills for a profit. Oh, it's amazing! It's amazing. <laughs> you, you discuss. You discuss some of that now. It's it's uh, that's over. Huh? That's gone. You you discuss in the in the film uh, the the Hollywood Gold film, and and again, I can't stress to the listeners enough to check it out. It's 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 a really cool story. Um, but in that, you talk with uh, Jeff Goldblum, who obviously the star of of uh, the, the watch of the, the, the favor, the watch, and the very big fish, uh, about. Uh, obviously, a conversation, subsequent conversation where you helped him select a watch for his character in Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. uh, which he refers to as needing to be virile, sexy, and romantic. And you comment <laughs> as part of your your narration of it is who who knew a watch could be all these things. And I, and I as as much as I, I agree with what you've just said that that watches you know there's a lot of bullshit that surrounds watches and. Uh, but there's also a lot of intrinsic, you know, real subtlety to the to the designs and the quality. I mean, as you must know, if you're buying Pateks over the years, there's a reason Patek has, has enjoyed its its place in the sun for so long. What what do you? I mean, that and the whole idea really cuts to the heart of so many areas of design, watches, cars, um, homewares, like none of those things need to be beautiful. Uh, they serve a very specific functional purpose. What, what do you think it is? Why do you think it is that across not just watches, why do you think it is that mankind has produced this intersection between form and function across all cultures and throughout history? Why do you think man will just has to make something beautiful? Oh, look, I, I think that the relationship of people and stuff is very complicated. It goes back a long way. It's it's fascinating. Um, you can address it at many, many levels. I think that um, um, there's, a, there's a spiritual level to it, and I think that uh, man, humankind's, uh, attraction to adornment, jewellery, had a spirituality about it because um, from the time that people buried their dead, in other words, you know, early, the earliest graves were discovered, they discovered jewellery inside those, you know, Stone Age or whatever it was, Paleolithic graves. and. Why would you take jewellery to your grave with you unless there was a spiritual dimension about it, that you 
believed in an afterlife, that you had formed those kind of beliefs. And I remember there was a time when I first came to Santa Monica, I got very friendly with a local uh, pawnbroker, Angelo, uh, 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 and, um, you know, one of the things I really liked about his shop was there were no guns. Okay, it was, and 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 the door was always open. It wasn't as if you had to buzz and then buzz again. You know, there it was. The door was open, and Angelo was a friendly guy, and um, our our kids kind of got friendly. And he would consult me about watches. Um, and at a certain point, I wanted to buy his business. Why did I want to buy his business? He was moving up north. He wanted to have a ranch and he wanted to get rid of the business. Number one, it was a mint. You know, you printed money. You could charge piratical interest rates, which were set by the government. So it was all kosher. It was fascinating because there was all this stuff, you know, and people's relationship, this stuff. And um, also I wanted to make a TV show, uh, put high-def cameras everywhere. Yeah. And, and and Angela said, what, are you crazy? Who's going to watch what goes on in a pawn shop anyway? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was history. And so that was that was part of the And it, Anyway, in the course of showing me how pawns were redeemed, you know, what happened when it comes, you know, there were these two Mexican ladies, a mother and a daughter, came in to redeem some gold jewellery, some bracelets, necklaces and so on. And it came to sort of 400 and something dollars and they emptied their purses and they were short maybe 20 bucks and Angelo let them have it anyway. And when they left, I said, Angelo, wouldn't they have been better off using that money to buy groceries? He said, of course. But, you know, that stuff is very important to them. Those pathetic trinkets really meant a lot to them. Yeah. So it, it it kind of there was something the same about the 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 guy who had to have the bombardier airplane and the 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 Latino cleaning lady who had to have that gold bracelet. It, it, you yeah, know yeah, yeah. there was a uh, somehow people and their stuff is a is a kind of an eternal mystery. Um, I never really became a collector. What fascinated me about it was the dealings. I never, right. you know, I've, I've known collectors, and there are collectors and there are hoarders. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the line is uh, is blurry. Again, in Hollywood Gold, there's a, there's a conversation where actually Malcolm McDowell asked this guy that you're talking to watch this yes, about. Yes, yes, yes. He talks about the statement that every collector is a dealer and every dealer is a collector. Yes. Do you agree with that idea? Do you think that everybody, all collectors kind of deal a bit because you sort of have to sell stuff to buy stuff? And I guess at what point does a collect, at what point does a collector tip into being both? Uh, at the very outset, I, I mean, I when I when I first decided I wanted to seriously do this, I went to see a guy in Melbourne, a, a collector. I don't know, he's he's long gone, but he was known as the Opal King. 
He truly was the most important Opal dealer in Australia, if not one of the most important in the world, John Altman. And John was a collector par excellence. He would spend 10 years collecting French carriage clocks, working his way up to having, you know, a world-class collection. And then he'd sell it at a theme auction. Yes. And then he'd spend... 10 or 12 years collecting vintage Rolls Royces. Right. And and again, for the same end. So he collected for fun and profit. There was a sort of a a methodology. And I never, I I don't think he ever allowed his collection to kind of ossify and just, you know, he'd pile more stuff on top of more stuff. They're hoarders. We know some of them, don't we? Yes. No, no comment, because I also want some of those uh, to be on my podcast. I think the process of collecting is a process of refinement and learning, and the best collectors are dealers from day one. Yeah. But they may, you know, specialise. They're not retailers. You know, if you're a retailer, uh, in many cases, you'll know a lot less than your customers, and you have to be careful about that. So just to extend on that idea, I've spoken with a number of my guests on the show about this idea of being a collector, and I think that the the simplest one is probably the most accurate, which is basically a collector is someone who has multiple or acquires multiple of a thing whether it's wine or art or watches or cars or, you know, vintage Rolls Royces, as you said, or whatever. So you can be a collector without actually knowing anything and you can walk past the, the, the guy who designed the watch or did the painting in the street and not know. To my mind, and maybe this is just a reflection of my own ego and its insecurities, but to my mind there's, a, there's another level there which is, you know, sort of enthusiast or aficionado where, Okay, you, you, it's not even about the acquisition because you might know a lot about vintage Patek Philippe's but not own any. But it's there's there's that sort of difference. There's a to me there's a difference between collecting and being an enthusiast. So as as you've just said, like you said, you've you've never really become a collector. But do you think though that you do you count yourself as a watch enthusiast? Like, do you love them? Do they make you happy, or or is it is it just a, an arbitrage of protects from one place to another? Well, I think that you you know everyone has their own story. I don't. I wouldn't like to generalise. And watchers and I collided um, at a particular moment when I was when I was making the favourite watch and a very big fish. I had a sudden and unexpected health crisis, a little brush with mortality. I came to the conclusion that the, the the film business was killing me and that I didn't want to die for it and I, ne- I needed a distraction and that I wanted and, and that watches became a kind of therapy for me, a hobby. It was a hobby that ran away and, you know, <laughs> ran out of control. <laughs> but but he, he, that was the idea to sort of take me away from the stresses of the uh, of the film business into, you know, another world. I think it did that, but it did it to the extreme and it it did it in an unexpected way and it was a a whole journey. I I don't know whether they were the the lost years or the discovered years. I don't know. (laughs) Can you tell tell us about, I mean, you, you, you obviously feel strongly about that time. 
Um, can you tell us about what, what it was that when you say it got away from you, like what, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I never realised that I'd be turning over millions of dollars right. and that I'd be mixing with this weird crowd of people and that I'd be living this completely different life and I'd be, you know, looking at diamonds and uh, I, I didn't, you know... It, my life has been a kind of a story of just going where the river took me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I started as a criminal lawyer like your friend Louis and his dad Robert, but <laughs> boom, some, I collided with something and I went somewhere else. And the watches was that kind of thing. I just, I, I, it, it, and I tend to do things in, in extremes and I really dived into it. I never dived into it. You know, the one thing that you really have to be careful about is being too visible in the business um, because then you run the risk of getting robbed and and um, that is also a whole industry. I, I mean, I went, you know, used to do the shows in Vegas and some other places and, um a lot of money, <laughs> a lot of money changing hands. Sure. That was quite fascinating. After all, you know, yes, I was and still am drawn to the aesthetic, that kind of form and function thing. Yeah, it's a very important element, but there are a whole, whole lot of different layers to it. Like it's part of that world of... Um, converting cash into a more portable form. Sure. Um, you know, I was years ago we were doing this series in Australia called The Migrant Experience, and we got friendly with this Vietnamese couple, a brother and sister, who were boat people, you know. They escaped from Vietnam on this kind of rickety boat and subject to Thai pirates and <coughs> what did they – and they lived in a nice little house, you know. They both worked on the trams. They had their own house. How'd you do that? He said, well, before we left Thailand, we had our, uh, we left Vietnam. We had our teeth drilled out and diamonds inserted in them and then filled in again wow. so that the Thai pirates couldn't get them. And then when we got to Melbourne, we had the diamonds taken out and we bought a house. <laughs> <laughs> That's an amazing story. In your capacity as a what you call in Hollywood gold a fancy schmancy watch <laughs> consultant to the stars. Yeah. I mean, there are yeah. several huge names in that film of people that you're rubbing shoulders with. So you must have some amazing stories about some amazing people from that time. And I guess the question is not just, uh, you know, tell us about the biggest star and the most, you know, jaw-dropping spend or anything. It's more just how is it to help people uh, here at Fun Watches and through the podcast, I try and help people learn a little bit and expose people to some brands they haven't heard of, Zin out of Germany or, you know, have a look at the latest Langen Cost Collection because it's amazing when people are just thinking, oh, I have to buy a Rolex or whatever oh, it happens to be. And that's not to say Rolex isn't a good watch to buy, but I try and yeah. kind of but, – but you were operating completely – 
And part of that is also that, you know, they don't have the 20 grand to buy the Rolex. So what am I going to do with five that I thought was going to buy a Rolex? And okay, so here's seven or eight choices of amazing watches at five grand. How was it for you playing in a space where people just had money to buy whatever they wanted and there was no limit to what they were buying? And so how do you steer and and help someone in that position? Well, um, I, my, uh, my universe was more diverse than that. Uh, I, I stayed away from Hollywood people, number one. I had one, you know, bad experience and I thought I've got to stay away from Hollywood people. Also, I wanted to keep my two lives separate. So my clients were not usually Hollywood types. Right. Uh, um, and, you know, the, that the fancy Spanish Schmancy watch consultant to the stars was a little bit of a stretch for the sake of the movie. That wasn't, okay, you know, okay. I didn't spend a major, but people would ask me about watches, but it wasn't, uh, I wouldn't call it a vocation. Um, you know, I, I really, I enjoyed um, watches, you know, rich and poor, Um it it was fun dealing, you know, with the kind of some of the more stratospheric pieces. Um, but I really found it uh, like learning a new culture. Um, um, I try, I'm trying to sort of piece the chronology together. Here was a, a big occasion. I'd never been to Vegas. I'd never been to a watch show. I didn't know anything about, I thought, okay, I'm going to go to Vegas. I'm going to watch show. I didn't take very much cash because I thought Vegas terror stalks the streets. It's nothing like that. It's the opposite. It's one of the safest places in the world in, in many respects. Yeah. Um, uh, but I didn't, you know, I took a checkbook and, and, and I thought I'm going to look, I'm not going to, you know, and I didn't know what a watch show was and so on. So I go to this show and um, I'm walking around and I see a uh, uh, a guy giving back a watch to a lady and it interests me and I look at it and, and um, what did I know then? I didn't, I knew fuck all. Um, all I knew was this was an attractive-looking Patek Philippe and it had stuff on it, you know, had stuff going on on the dial. Yes. And so I, um, how much is that? It's just uh, $4,250, 4250 Yes. So uh, I put it back. I haven't got that amount in cash. No one here knows me. I find a guy from Melbourne who went to Elwood High, I think. You know, I think his name was Uri. And what does Uri do? I think he mostly sells fake um, bezels, Rolex bezels, and, you know, fake. I think he got into trouble for it at some point. Anyway, so Uri and I vaguely recognised Uri. I said, I I need some cash. You know, there's this terrific watch over there. I think it's a really good price. Um, he comes and says, what, what 4250 4, for that? He says, yes, it's worth it. So 
he peels off, I don't know what it was, he loans me about two and a half thousand. I find another guy I know, a watchmaker from San Diego. I borrow a few hundred from him. I put together a bundle of cash and I say to the go back to the lady, I said, will you take 4,000? Yes. Can I give you some, most of it in cash and some in a check? Sure. So I give her 4,000 in a combination of cash and check. And I go back to the watchmaker who I presume knows something about watches and, and you know, what he, you know, and I mumble something about, do you want to buy it? How much? I'm thinking maybe double my money, 8,000, 6,000, whatever the hell. He can't make up his mind. Someone taps me on the shoulder and says, um, God, I've forgotten the name of the guy. Big dealer from Texas, Bob, someone or other. He says, Bob, we'll give you 20,000 for it. What? <laughs> so, all right, that's all right. <laughs> I wheel around to Bob. He looks at it. Says, yeah. I said, uh, he says, where did you buy it? I said, here in the room. You know, I'm pointing vaguely in a direction. I said, what'd you pay for it? I said, 4000 He said, ah, it happens. So he peels off 20 grand in cash. I mean, whew, I've never done that before, 20 grand in cash. <laughs> I go, um, I go, uh, uh, I give back the watchmaker his cash. I you go back his money. Yeah, yeah. Or come and have lunch with me. You know, you've been very, very nice of you to trust me. He doesn't believe that I've just, you know, <laughs> turned four grand into 20 grand. <laughs> On the way out, I sort of try to call my wife. I can't call. The phone is busy because I want to tell her we're going to have a lovely weekend. Da, 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 da. Yeah. I have lunch. I try to call my li- my wife again. I get through. She's darling, I've got some. Ah, go no further. She says, half the watch dealers in California are looking for you. This <laughs> <laughs> is what what happened? Oh, the, the, the place is in an uproar. Da, 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 da. What happens? It was a mistake. I put down the phone. There's a, a guy, he's a collect, he was a he was in Schmutters, you know, yeah. a, a very nice man, Erwin Hollander, lovely, lovely, lovely man. He was a he'd gone into watches and and he was one of the few people I trusted as a mensch. Yeah. What had happened? The price was supposed to be forty two thousand five hundred. They missed a zero. This was a reference oh. three four four eight, you know. No. In a perpetual, yes. um, oh, and, and and as far as I was concerned, um, big deal. Their problem. I bought the wash legitimately. Uh, go and talk to the lady who made the mistake. It's not. Yeah, yeah. And if wow. I if I'd have been a a German dealer or Italian, I would have been straight out of the hotel to the airport. Goodbye. <laughs> anyway, I say to uh-huh. Erwin, what shall I do? He says, give it back. Just like that. He says, yeah, give it back. So I, I go into the room and 
it is in an uproar. The manager of the show is beside himself. The woman is in tears. Her husband is going to divorce her. Anyway, I go, look, uh, calm down, really. Uh, we'll make things okay. So I go up to Bob, whose second name I've forgotten. I said, this is what's happened. Um, if you're prepared to roll it back, then I'm prepared to roll it back. There was still plenty of profit left in it for him. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he agreed to roll it back. And, you know, the thing that really soured the thing was when her husband turned up, he was at some other show. He was like a real, he was nasty asshole, something of an anti-Semite. And yeah. it, the whole thing really traumatised me. Yeah, right. And because while I'd been out of the room, there'd been a kind of kangaroo court and which had decided that I had acted unethically. Right. And this was against the rules of the club. I said, what club? I'm not a member of any damn club. I mean, and, and there was a guy who I barely knew, a well-known dealer called Sig Schonholtz. He had a business called he's Second Color. He's the every collector is a dealer. Every yeah, yes, so yes. He's a collector yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. He stood up for me. And said, how can you possibly, you know, no, no, he behaved like a gentleman and you're criticising, you know, no, no, no. so, yeah. you know, from that time, Sig and I became friends. We still are friends. I'm trying to do a deal with them at the moment. It's not easy. <laughs> yeah. but, but he was one of the real characters in the business. And, um, I, you know, I got over all of that, that rather traumatic experience. And a guy that I connected with, you know, he knew someone who knew a doctor who gave my number, said, can you buy me a watch? Um, uh, for, I need it as a sort of a business gift. You know, he was a private banker or something. What is it that you want? He, it was a modern IWC. I don't know, like a, a doppel chronograph. I don't know what, one of those. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Sure, I can get one um, at a discount, yes. So I go into um, Feldmar watches on Pico. Do you know Feldmar? Yes, yes. Very nice people. <laughs> the the uh, Sol Meller, he's now dead, but, you know, we're very friendly. So I bought it there. He gives me a terrific discount. You know, I added a thousand dollars and I sold it to my friend, and he was delighted. And he, and then he, he came back and he said, "I'd like a watch for myself. What's the best watch I can get, in your opinion? What would you buy?" Da, 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 da. So I think I would buy a a uh, vintage Patek Philippe minute repeating wristwatch. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'll that's those. Yeah, definitely <laughs> best. Yeah, definitely as well. Beautiful. And I and I said, no, 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 Aaron, I'm not really serious. I mean, you're going to wear it. We're talking about at that time, two hundred grand and up. Yes, yes, yes. Of course. So I, I happened to see one. You know, the NAWCC had this crappy like newspaper mark thing, and I saw in the back of their you know advertisements for a. 1950s minute repeating wristwatch. And so I got in touch with the guy. His name was Ben Gravelay from New Orleans. And um, 
He said, oh, you're the guy who gave the watch back at the show in Vegas. Yeah, that's me. So, so he sends me this Patek Philippe minute repeater without any form of security whatsoever. It's like we finally did a deal for, I think, 185000 Wow. For that, for that watch. He sends it to me just by registered mail. Just have a Still look. Like what are you Amazing. And and uh, anyway, I, I sold the watch and I resold the watch and um, um and and so that episode had had repercussions and you know had good repercussions. I'm glad I listened to the advice and gave the watch back. Uh, that's uh, that's bananas. Absolutely bananas. It's such a mistake. Yeah. And a wonderful reflection on yourself <laughs> going back to her and uh, and sorting it out. It's pretty crazy. I guess it, you know, partly explains why I've never made all that much money in the game. <laughs> <laughs> talking about the money side of it, you talk in the film about this settling up at the end of the month system between all the jewelers and they all go around and they keep a chit of who owes what. And I, I had certainly heard about in New York, the, in the Diamond District, where there's a lot of jewellery, but there's also a hell of a lot of beautiful watches being changed over there. And from what I understand, in the Diamond District, it's an even longer settlement period that the, the day before Yom Kippur or whatever, they, they all settle up one to the other. I mean, that must be a tremendous web with tremendously complicated paperwork and everything. Having seen it work, can you give us an insight into the the workings of how that whole thing works or doesn't, as the case may be? Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I've been out of the game for a while. But at that time, you, you know, there was people operated on this kind of daisy chain of debt. Everyone owed people something and and it really was, it, it was kind of crazy. Um, and Jerry was the Jerry was the king of of this. Uh, I mean, as you could probably get the impression, he could sell refrigerators to Eskimos. There, you know, there's a, a real element of show business about selling expensive shit, and you can see that Jerry really was a showman. Oh, sure, yeah, but. He was out of control and, in a way, you, you know, um, had no remorse, had no conscience. He stole from everybody he could. I mean, you, you, you know, it's um, – and the basis on which he ran his business, you came in with some uh, delightful item <clears throat> and he would almost certainly buy it from you, but you wouldn't get paid then, you know. you. you like in a really good year, I would maybe sell him a million dollars worth of stuff. And in the end, I came out all right after doing business with him for about six years, I think. Yeah. I, I didn't do too badly in the end, but um, that's what that was the basis on which he operated. You know, people would come in to collect their debts and it would be like paying off a tab. There were some dealers who just didn't do it. You know, there's, um, I don't know, I, I used to sell watches to a guy who became now one of the biggest dealers in the game, uh, Stephen Rostovsky. Um, and um, 
Stephen, nothing um, comes into his possession without him paying for it, and nothing leaves his possession without it being paid for. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm sure he loses a lot of business for that reason. <laughs> um, but um, are you interested in the whole kind of product placement side of watches? Um, you know, watches in movies and things. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that was that was another whole area to talk about with you because obviously your your experience with in that conversation with Jeff Goldblum, and I'm assuming other other moments in in the business, it's always struck me that in films, I mean, there is that simple sort of product placement thing. But what I find most interesting is how much thought actually goes into the watches in films. I mean, watch people, I pause stuff all the time to see yeah. if I can't recognise it while they're moving. But how much actually goes into that, in, into the production designers and, and, you know, art, art direction people and everything? You, you know, it's an ongoing debate where the watches are props or costume. So I haven't figured that out. <laughs> so... Wow, sure. So, uh, for instance, if you're using a pen in a scene, it's regarded as a prop. Yes. But I think a watch is, I think a watch is costume. Um, now, on my movies, uh, I'm very conscious of watches being correct for the period and correct for the characters. And um, on, uh, you know, m- my not the last one, but the one before that, I went and chose the watches myself for the characters. Yeah. Um, I went to a, a vintage watch store and chose them and we rented them. Um, and uh, as long as they're correct for the period, um, uh, the last movie, <laughs> I thought, uh, you know, because of that, First experience with J.J. Lecoultre, I thought, wow, that's pretty good. I stick a watch in a film and they give me two watches. Well, I wonder if I, next time I tried that, mm, it didn't quite work out. <laughs> J.J. Lecoultre loaned us a fancy watch, but it was a loan, you know. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and on the last one, I thought, okay, maybe. Now, Stephen Rostovsky, um owns a chunk of a watch company called De Buffoon. Yes. You know? Yes, absolutely. And I thought, okay. Um, so I asked him, so someone from De Buffoon contacted me and it all just became too much bother. Number one, they're not going to, I don't think they're going to give you a watch for free. They're not going to pay for it. And how the hell do I figure out a reason for a big close-up of a watch? Sure. (laughs) That doesn't look like completely out-of-context advertising. So I no longer think of kind of product placement. I thought there was a huge opportunity missed, both from the commercial point of view for the Producers and obviously, I mean, it's a, it's a massive franchise, so they probably don't care. But from also from a watch person's point of view, was in the first Iron Man film with Robert Downey Jr. Oh. His secretary gets his watch box out for him to pick a watch for an, for the evening, 
Yeah. And as she's lifting it, I'm as a watch guy, I'm like, fuck, here we go. Like this is gonna be, this is gonna be a stellar watch box. And they cut, I they, it just wasn't in the shot. And so you you want to know what Tony Stark has in his watch box, right? Like <laughs> not not necessarily who's just gonna pay for it, because you know that Bond is get, you know, Bond's getting Omega's paying for Bond to wear an Omega for sure. But it started with a Rolex, wasn't he? Wasn't the first Bond uh, uh, Rolex submarine? Yeah, and it was, and it, and if you if you look closely at the shots of Connery with, with you know where his his watch is in shot, he's uh-huh. got that regimental NATO strap. Yes, on the watch, yes. and it's actually a couple of mil too small for the lugs. So it was, you know, whoever did it really kind of thought about, you know, how how is a military, you know, diver actually going to wear this watch? And they sorted it out and they did it quite accurately because they took it off the, the metal bracelet, which he certainly wouldn't be wearing over a wetsuit. Yeah. And, and you know, movie stars are big into watches. They're all buying that stupid Richard Mill. I don't get that at all. <laughs> yeah, the F1 driver is the same with Richard Mill, definitely. The, the what? The F, the Formula One guys are the same. The drivers, a lot of them have Richard Mill yeah. watches, and actually, yeah. two of them have been have been um, robbed of them. Most recently, Charles Leclerc, which is a, a young guy who drives for Ferrari, and he's was a customized in Mon- he's, he's a Monegasque, so the colors were he's on a Monaco colors red and white, uh, and a one off. And someone robbed him of it. So what are they going to do with it? And the same with Lando Norris, who's also a, a driver who had a custom McLaren one, which was sort of orange and, and blue. Mm. Uh, and, you know, when, when, who's going to buy that? Like you can't be seen sporting Charlotte <laughs> Clerk's watch, you know. <laughs> you know, uh, talking about drivers, one of the most interesting watches I ever owned one of those watches that I thought, oh, why didn't you keep that? Was it was made by a man called Ed Kern. Ed Kern was one of the principal watchmakers at Patek Philippe. He used to make their minute repeaters. Wow. And there was a guy called Ralph Teeter, who Ed Kern, K-O-E-H-N. Ralph Teeter had a very famous Patek Philippe minute repeater. It was a cushion shape. Um, uh, I don't know if you're aware that prior to, there was a kind of palace revolution at around 1990 at Patek Philippe, and um, a lot of their practices changed. They realised they had much more production capacity than they were actually using, and they Up until then, I remember visiting the factory and asking the person who was showing me around, who was Philippe Stern's stepdaughter, could she show me a a minute-repeating wristwatch? She said, we don't have any. Up until that time, they'd only ever made about 30 of them. Um, Yeah. And then when they started, you know, ramping up production, the next time they made a series of 30, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> so these, anyway, this, uh, this cushion-shaped minute repeater that Ralph Dieter had was uh, a, an important watch. It sold for a huge amount of money. 
another watch which he had, which was signed by Ed Kern, was a minute-repeating driver's watch. Okay. This was the fascinating thing about Ralph Teeter. He was an automotive engineer, a famous automotive engineer. He had invented cruise control. Wow, yeah. But he was blind since childhood. He was blind. So here was the ultimate watch made for the man, a minute-repeating driver's watch made for a blind automotive engineer. It was a beautiful piece, you know. It was angled it was. like driver's yeah. watches yes. are. And that was one of the most um, interesting special watches I've ever had. Oh, wonderful. My last guest was Tanya Edwards, who works at Collectability with John Reardon. Mm-hmm. They focus on Patek. And their hot tip is that that's where the money is now. If you if you still want to, there's, there's value in Patek pocket watches. Pocket watches? Yeah, Patek pocket oh. watches apparently is they believe that they will run. I mean, you know, everybody has their own crystal ball, right? But And it strikes me that there are some absolutely magnificent pieces from Patek in that pocket watch format that are a piece of horological history well worth owning and would have to continue to be going forward, I would have thought. One of my most bizarre deals was uh, so I got friendly with a guy in L.A. who was a fat doctor. Um, <laughs> he wasn't personally fat. I was going to say, is he was fat and he was a doctor or he was a fat doctor? <laughs> he was a fat doctor dealing with, dealing with people with weight issues. Who are fat, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And he got sick of seeing fat people and one day decided never going to want to see another fat person again. He himself was fairly, fairly thin, you know, and and um, and he got into watches. And we did we did certain stuff together. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to mention his name because I, I don't know. He left us don't need to. So he's uh, He's been married, divorced. He meets a, you know, a Chinese girl in a fast food Chinese takeaway, marries her, (laughs) starts doing business in Shanghai, would you believe, um, a fertility clinic. Well, okay. Who wants to open a fertility clinic in China? But interestingly enough, at that time of that, that the one child rule. So people and wanted to have their one child. Yeah, and you can only have one child. And and uh, if you if for people who had uh, difficulty conceiving, they, they were desperate. So there he was with his wife opening fertility clinics in Shanghai. Get a, a call from his wife is in Shanghai. He met some important watch collector wants to sell a watch, a pocket watch. The best thing at that time was a fax. Put it on the fax machine, blah, blah, blah. there's a fax of, of this pocket watch. What I can see is that it's a, uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, got the works. It's a perpetual calendar, minute repeater, and although you cannot actually see the second hand, I figure I think this is a split second. 
as well. So uh, it's a pretty complicated watch. Yeah. <laughs> um, how much do they want? Oh, it's uh, like thirty-five thousand. Um, and uh, he's asking me to sort of say, "Is this watch real or not? Is this the real thing?" And all I've got is a fax, and I think. Uh, Looks pretty real, you know. If you're going to fake a watch, that's probably not the one you'd choose to make a fake of. You know, everything looks right, the dimensions and uh, and look. One thing leads to another. It doesn't. It not thirty five. It ends up costing me. I think sixty thousand. I think it's thirty each. Sixty thousand we pay for the watch, and I. Um, check with Patek Philippe, I give them the numbers. Has the watch been, you know, reported stolen or missing? And where was it originally sold? It was originally sold in Shanghai. Well, that's good news. And no, it hasn't been reported stolen or missing. Okay. So, in fact, the the fat doctor, he wants me to buy him out of the watch and I end up with, with 70 grand in the watch. And at that time, I was sending out this kind of annual calendar in a CD box with pictures of watches for each month. And this other, well, this will be my December watch. So I send out my calendar and eventually I get a, oh, yes. And I'm making, I think I'm making a film at that time. I was making Hollywood Gold and... And I go to the hotel to meet a potential buyer for the pocket watch. And we're in the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. I think that's where they made Pretty Woman. Yeah. And I sell him the watch, I think, for 95000 But not physically, you know. It, it, he, knows, it, he knows exactly what it is. And, and um, I think I show him physically the watch, but we don't actually complete the transaction. I get back to my office and there's a fax from a dealer in Japan, Yoshi. He is well-known. He has a well-known store in Tokyo. And he says, thank you for your lovely calendar. The December watch looks awfully like a watch that was stolen from us in a big robbery. And I wonder if you send me the numbers of the watch. So... Uh, I send him the numbers of the watch, and yeah. and that's that's the watch. So all of a sudden, I have a watch with a cloud on it. You know, I can't sell it. The ironical thing is, Yoshi doesn't ask me for the watch back. He doesn't give me any instructions whatsoever. We meet at a show in Orlando, and I try to get the uh, manager of the show, Burley Bullock. I don't know if you've heard of Bur- Burley Bullock. No, but I'll definitely look that he, name up. <laughs> he set up. He set up something called the IWJG. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, that, and I tried to get Burley to kind of arbitrate. What are we? What's going on here? You know, Yoshi never asked me to take the watch to the show. I didn't take it to the show. We're sitting there. What do you want me to do? I don't know. You know, there was an insurance payout. I don't want you to do anything. Yeah. So I'm. You know, I'm. I'm screwed, I think. What am I doing? I'm sitting on a watch that I can't sell and with no instructions about what to do with it. Technically owned by the insurance company, I suppose, legally or? 
So I go to a lawyer and he says, well, you can go to a court and a certain process of getting a declaration that the wash belongs to you. You notify all the possible parties who could have any interest and and then, you know, if no one gets it responds, then the watch is yours. You had a declaration. That's terrific. We go down that road. So it takes several months. And on the, you know, 11th hour of the 11th, you know, at, at one second to midnight, <laughs> I get a letter from a Japanese insurance company telling me that, that I'm a criminal and that I owe them $170,000, which was the payout and um, uh, and blah, blah, blah. And I take this letter to my lawyer and he says, uh, and I suspect the same thing, he says, I don't think they can prove ownership. And and so we we say, okay, you need to show us what your title to the watch, exactly why you think you own the watch. Yeah. Again, and uh, no reply. Again, at one second to midnight, we get a letter from them saying, look, give us $10,000, all right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> My lawyer says, don't give them a penny. You know, they have no evidence whatsoever of ownership. Who knows what this watch, this watch has probably been stolen back and forth by the Yakuza between Shanghai and Tokyo. <laughs> and anyway, I said, no, if I sit on the watch another year, then it's going to cost me 10 grand just to sit on it. And so I gave them the 10 grand and I sold the watch at Sotheby's for 150 grand. Nice. And I thought, be careful. <laughs> yes. You know, and the watch had an interesting anomaly to it, actually. And I've seen this more than once. On the, uh, uh, where it says the number of jewels, it said one number in words and a different number in figures. Right. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Well, I discovered another Patek Philippe pocket watch where the name Patek Philippe was spelt incorrectly, although the watch was perfectly correct. And again, I asked why. And apparently the explanation is, you know, given all the different watch trades involved in making a watch, engravers are the most stupid. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the explanation offered up. But isn't it? Anyway, I asked Sotheby's in the case where the jewels were different. I asked um, them to make a special picture of it, like an inset in the catalogue. Yeah. And because there was a uh, a note from Patrick Philippe to say it was a workshop error. Wow. It, didn't make, it didn't make a damn bit of difference. I mean, it, you know, no one, no one really cared. But it's it's interesting that. Um, you know, watch company will misspell its own name. <laughs> or allow it to get through. So we've spoken quite a bit about your trade of Patek in particular. One of the things that I discuss on this show is around the idea that a good watch doesn't necessarily have to cost the earth, as we were talking about before, and there are some some amazing brands doing amazing things. I mean, I would argue that the whole Seiko Pro Specs range is 
about as good a watch as any of the other tool companies, tool watches costing 10 times more by just about any measure. Are there, are there any sort of more, I guess, I'm trying to, I don't know, consumer brands is on the tip of my tongue, but I don't think that's quite right. Are there any more sort of accessible brands that you also admire the work of that you've seen come across your, your desk over the years? Um. You know, um, all, all my family have Amigas. I, I have, um, you know, this belonged to um, uh, belonged to my wife's uncle Lutek. Yes, uh, in in Western Australia, it's an Amiga Seamaster. Beautiful. Um, I bought Amiga Seamasters for my um, for two of my kids as well, and I, I think that. That kind of period of watch, the fifties and sixties Seamasters, really good looking. They have a terrific vintage look about them, and they're very reliable. So, um, if uh, I know people who are kind of fascinated by watches but don't have a huge amount of money to spend but want to get into the game, I tell them to go for these old brands like Omega, Longines. Simer, here's a here's a beautiful Simer. Oh, wonderful! Look at the case. That's yeah, beautiful. yeah, beautiful. And the inscription on the back. It says, "To Fred from Amy." Fabulous. Nineteen forty-two. Wow. Um, I mean, I, 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 and I think that. Um, all these brands which kind of disappeared during the courts, you know, as a result of the courts revolution, in their day they designed some terrific watches. Doxa and is another brand that... Um, Making a nice resurgence these yeah. days. In terms of the non I mean, I'm, I'm not a... Uh, I mean, if you if you're into Patek Philippe, you're basically just following the money in terms of aesthetic. I think there are many more aesthetically pleasing watches. One of the brands that I really liked, and I dealt with a few of them. I think I was one of the only people in America dealing with them was Urban Jurgensen, and I, at that time they only made about three hundred watches a year. And there was a friend of mine who I think was an investor in the company and had access to their watches and was forever bringing me Urban Jurgensen watches. And I thought, you know, they were really, you know, beautiful uh, design, the kind of just the aesthetic of them, the hands, the have you, have you, have you, do you know the watches at all? No, I don't. And I'll certainly look them up after Urban, we speak. Urban Jurgensen. Um, and uh, you know, they, they in many ways looked like a 1940s Vacheron um, with the uh, the teardrop lugs, and um, they have a guilloche dial, and you know, very beautiful hands. Um, and in terms of um, uh, pocket watches, the early um, uh, Jules Jurgensen. Pocket watches, really, really beautifully made, uh, amongst the most beautiful nineteenth-century um, pocket watches were the Jules, Herbert uh, Jurgensen, and Jules Jurgensen. Um, oh, and, yes, I'm looking at them now. Yeah, fantastic. And because I kind of had access to them, 
through this unusual connection, I really, you know, uh, wow, I really like them. And um, uh, I mean, as I say, what I'm, I'm, I'm completely. I, I think there's a sort of a. Um, I mean, the whole Daytona craze is it's kind of pure bullshit. Um, from <laughs> it, it's extraordinary because um, these are watches which I don't know any other art form where something of acknowledged mediocrity reaches such stratospheric price levels. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, a Paul Newman steel Daytona, when they were originally produced, were discounted from $700 to $300. Yeah. And (laughs) now you've got one (laughs) selling for $18 million. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I think it's there's a point in your in your, again in 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 Hollywood gold, and it, and it, and I, I say again, I, you know, we've talked about the film, referred to the film a fair bit, but it just there, there were just some real, you know, it, it captured so many of the things that I, I I sort of think about when I, I think about watches, and I have touched on this with some guests, and you you're the first guest who's just called it out for what it is, which is bullshit. I agree. Uh, you know, the the not only the 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 Daytona craze, but the the Nautilus craze. I mean, look, I, I love a Nautilus. I think it's a beautiful watch. I, I, you know, I think it's 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 one of the only Gerald Gentle designs that I personally like. I I can't stand the the Royal Oak, which is another you know watch around which there's a lot of bullshit. And I think that what you, you captured the answer to it though in 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 uh, uh, Hollywood Gold, where there's this scene of, of I think the Israeli jeweler is convincing this doctor that you know he should buy this jewels to make his wife look better in the nude or something, and it's and it's uh, it, to me the the people and I, I, I you know maybe I lose listeners here maybe I get in trouble here, but but often the people who Look, the guy who buy or the person who buys the the Graves complication or the actual Paul Newman Daytona or the yeah. actual Eric Clapton Patek or or the actual Nina Rint Universal Geneve, like it's kind of like how much money is it worth that it was theirs and it's worth more to others than others. But to me, it's just the fact that in my conversation with Tanya Edwards last time. Patek couldn't sell the Nautilus. They cancelled it because they couldn't sell it. And then suddenly they, it became a big thing. And I think that... I never liked it. I think it has... <laughs> no, and, and, and a lot of people don't. But I, I think it's it, it comes back to that idea that the people who buy that are, or only that and spend, you know, all their pennies on on something like that or, or at the moment, you know, spending $25,000 on a beat up Rolex Submariner that 10, 15 years ago was an $8,000 watch and should probably still be an eight to $10,000 watch. It is, it's people who are buying what they think others will think about them. They are not buying the intrinsic object that sits on their wrist or in a collection. Well, this is, look, look, 
uh, it's very, very difficult to find a, find a logic or a consistent motivation for it. One of my favourite watches is the Crash Watch, Cartier Crash. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And they've gone bananas at the moment as well. Okay. Now, I don't know. One of those things I would have kept, I, I, uh, I actually bought a Platinum Crash. Would you believe? Uh, I, t- I bought it from bought it from Monarchs in Collins Street. Wow. <laughs> Forget what I paid for it, about 15 grand or something, not a lot. And one day I bought um, – there's a there's a, uh, a watch coming up in a Christie's auction, I think in Geneva, uh, a London crash, and the estimate is like a hundred to two hundred thousand Swiss francs. Yellow gold London crash. Yeah. Most of the crash watches are Paris. Yeah. Anyway, so I see coming up, and this was quite some time ago in an antiquarium auction in New York, a London crash in white gold, and this is supposedly a unique piece. And I've got my big coffee table Cartier book by George Gordon. It's the size of a coffee table. you ever seen it? No, I haven't. One on Rolex and one on on, uh, Cartier. They're big books. And when you look at get to the page which has got the white gold London crash, it describes it as a unique piece. So I bid on this watch. I paid um, 25 grand and I think I, I owned it for about five minutes and then um, picked up the phone and resold it for, I think, a reasonable profit, not much, maybe yeah. three grand, two and a half or three grand or something. Um, but it, it was a good day's work. I get the watch, and of course, the very first thing I do is compare it to the watch in George Gordon's book. Looking and looking, it's not the same watch. When you look at the little fine details in the George Gordon book, it's slightly better. You, you know what I mean? It's not. And but it's definitely not the same fucking watch. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. So I call up. It was then Osvaldo Patrizzi. You remember him, Osvaldo? Yes. Uh, and Osvaldo, we have a problem here. Um, the watch, the white gold London crash, is not the same as in George Gordon's book. Okay, so there's this, you know, few moments of deathly silence and. And then he says, I'm sorry to tell you that the one in George Gordon's book is a fake. And <laughs> I said, wow, that's very interesting news. But I'd like to hear that from Cartier. Yeah, yeah. So, damn it, you know, and Cartier really don't like doing this. It's not like Patek Philippe where you send them da-da-da and they send you an extract. Cartier really are not into this authenticating their watches. However, they did issue a certificate with a photograph saying that was their watch. And to this day, I don't know which was the real one because, honestly, the one in George Gordon's book was slightly better finished. It was a bit nicer. How funny. Yeah. But, you know, 
again, careful of fakes. Um, and I don't know how difficult it is to fake a crash watch, but there you are. I mean, what's the value of a crash watch? I mean, you know, it's got a, a movement worth maybe a hundred bucks. <laughs> and, uh, and add to that, you know, a couple of hundred bucks worth of gold. <laughs> Oh, that was the end of my love affair. Where, where, are you, where are you getting to uh, 200 grand? That's what I want to know. <laughs> no, I, I, that's, that was the end of my love affair with, with Bell and Ross. I, I, I mean, I, I think some of their stuff is beautifully cased, but I bought a, one of their vintage range, not the big square piloty things, and I took it to a, a very good watchmaker here in Melbourne, and he said to me that he can replace the whole movement for 400 bucks with the same... Eat a movement that they'd used and put a Bell and Ross rotor on it. And I was like, well, fuck paying paying five or six grand for a Bell and Ross if it's got 50 bucks worth of metal in the case and 400 bucks worth of movement. You know? <laughs> I'm aware of time that I'm, I'm taking up a lot of your time this morning here and this evening there. I usually like to round out my podcast with a question for my guests around Grail watches. You've obviously handled some some pretty special pieces and mentioned a couple that you regret letting go. So let me sort of modify the question for you. One is, can you tell us your accessible grail and absolute sky's the limit, budget and rarity be damned, whatever you want, and or any watches that really are regret grails that stand out as shit, you know, I really should never have let that one go? Um. Yeah, the one I feel I shouldn't have let go. You, you know, I don't know any particular reason. It was a um, Cartier minute repeating pocket watch from the 1920s. And I believe it, uh, you know, it had an engraving on the cuvette or on the inside of the case from someone Sabin. And I'm pretty sure that it was a member of the Sabin was one of the guys who developed the polio vaccine. There was Sabin and Salk. Mm. And, and I thought, hmm, that had an interesting provenance. And, uh, and also it, it sounded beautiful. And Cartier minute repeaters are extremely rare mm. uh, pocket watches, much more so than Paddock. So I kind of regret that because... I think of all the complications, I like uh, minute repeaters most because they're the most discreet looking. They don't scream expensive complication at you. Um, and I guess if I was to have a, a sky's the limit snob watch, uh, how much better can you do than a George Daniels? Um, yeah, wow. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I, I'd love the idea of... of of having watch that even watch people don't know anything about, <laughs> because I think you you know this. No, there's only a certain class of watch people who know and admire George Daniels, um, and also because he is such a unique character. I mean, you know, this combination of the old way of doing things and the new way of doing we things. We told uh, Onassis to piss off when he wanted a watch from him, didn't he? That's the story. Also, also Prince Philip, I believe. Right. But uh, I, uh, I was very friendly with uh, a guy who knew him quite well through the car side of things. He was into vintage cars as well. Right. 
And I, I have a friend who um, has this racing circuit in England called Goodwood. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he knew George Daniels. So in terms of, you know, what's a sky the sky's the limit watch that um, I think, you know, I'd, I'd go for a George Daniels, you know, for the sheer conceit of having the most obscure watch in the world. I mean, he only ever made, what, 37 pieces in his whole lifetime. Mm. And I, I just love the idea that, you know, he did everything, which is not, is not even a tradition. I mean, the tradition was that people made this and people made that, but the idea of one person doing everything, I think, is a very unique thing. Oh, it's an, it's an absolutely fascinating answer. I, I, for me, um, this journey of of the podcasting has has sort of taken my certainly you know made me realize how little actually I know about the whole watch universe and where I learned about George Daniels when I was speaking to a chap called Eric Wind who is you know I, I think he was head of Christian yes, yes, I, I, I know you mean. I, in fact I listened to your podcast oh thank you and where I found the name was in in the list of the most, the hundred most expensive, or the 10, 20 most expensive watches, or whatever it is that, if you Google most expensive watches ever on Wikipedia, there's a list, and there are all these names that you know of Patek, 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 Rolex, mm-hmm. Rolex, Patek, Vacheron, mm-hmm. da da da, and then there's three George Daniels. It's like who the hell's this bloke? Mm-hmm. And you know, sort of looked it up from there. But it's it's yeah, his story is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I. I used to be a collector of cameras way, way back. I used to collect Leica cameras. And then we would traveled and I thought, oh, God, here we go again. What do I do with all these cameras? And in one day I sold my entire collection to a dealer and it was a very liberating experience letting go. Anyway, I bought a camera in London called a Gandolfi, a wooden you know, mahogany and brass camera. Yeah. And I found the guys who made it. They were famous camera makers. And there were these two old brothers, you know, working in an old shed. Fantastic. And they made me a couple of extra pieces for the camera. And then I visited them again just before they died. Wow. And the fact that I knew the people who had created this camera it meant so much to me. It's the only. It's the only camera that I ever kept. Wow! Um, and and as I say, because I I knew the people who made this out of raw pieces of wood, it meant something. And so that's why you know thinking of someone like George Daniels, um, Ben Lowen, it's been absolutely fascinating having you on the podcast. I really appreciate you making the time, and yeah, thank you so much for joining me. It's been the highlight of my week. Fabulous. Thank you. (laughs) Well, that was episode 19. I hope you agree it was a super interesting and entertaining conversation. Ben brings a refreshing, no bullshit view to the game of watches that we all love so well, in which so many people can be just so serious. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do rate and review. It helps us reach more people and is super appreciated and you're really supporting the growth of 
what I'm doing and uh, the little community that's growing up around it. Until next time, enjoy. Enjoy.